when i started covering the conflict and reporting on the war i never felt that it was traumatic because i had evolved in a culture of bulletproof journalism that was the culture that existed in sri lanka you used to talk about the physical impact like being caught in the crossfire or whatever but you never spoke about being emotionally affected by it. Amantha Pereira started working as a journalist 20 years ago. In 1998, he wrote for the Sunday Leader, a weekly English-language newspaper in Sri Lanka. As the paper's defense correspondent, he covered the Sri Lankan Civil War, where the government fought the insurgent Tamil Tigers mostly in the north and east of the country. Defense correspondent was a coveted job. It came with risks, but Pereira says no one at the time, journalists or editors, was thinking about how the disturbing, often violent events of the war affected the reporters covering them. It was almost accepted that the journalists who covered the war were not normal that they would get angry like you know that they were going to be these angry people inside editorials who would like you know blow fuses at the slightest provocation in my case uh, much more than the anger i now realize how it was manifest in me was that i became more isolated i started thinking about these things that i saw like the the bodies or the children that i saw but then i never spoke about it. even people that i was really close to me would say that i seemed removed this was especially true soon after the tsunami when i spent a considerable amount of time in the disaster zone this was at the end of december 2004 officials say over 30000 people died in sri lanka as a result of the tsunami day in day out you would see bodies bodies and nothing but bodies and absolute destruction nothing even a walk would come close to and when i would come back home uh, my family would say that i was very reserved that i was moody that i was not my natural self moodiness depression anger isolation these are normal reactions to seeing and experiencing disturbing events Journalists often dismiss them as just part of their job, but ignoring them only makes it worse. This is the Backstory, a podcast from Wanifra, the World Association of News Publishers. I'm Andy Haslop, Wanifra's Press Freedom Director. This season, in six episodes, we're going deep into safety. What journalists, editors, and the public should be thinking about to stay safe in a world increasingly hostile to the press. This episode talking about trauma, valuing mental health as much as physical safety. Many journalists see and even experience some kind of trauma during their work, whether in a conflict zone, covering protests or violent crime. One of the best ways of coping is to talk about the experiences and the feelings that they evoke. But few people do that, journalists or their editors included. When I was working, I I tended to switch my emotional brain off a little bit and photograph what i needed to photograph and it's often afterwards as you're going through your pictures or after you've left the country and the risk has diminished and you're reflecting back on what you've done and what has happened that things can really begin to sink in Finbar O'Reilly is a British Canadian photographer and author for nearly 10 years from 2005 to 2014 He was a newswire photographer covering conflict zones in the likes of Congo, Niger, and Chad. He embedded with troops in Afghanistan several times between 2007 and 2011. 
Towards the end of those years, he took a sabbatical to pursue a fellowship looking into the psychology of trauma. It was a needed break, and when he came back to work, he didn't want to return to a conflict zone. But, as he told producer Sarah Elsass, he was sent to Gaza in the summer of 2014, as Israel had just launched an offensive. I found myself in the midst of heavy bombardment where people were being killed at an extremely high rate. And the role of the media in that particular conflict uh, led me to a kind of moral conundrum where I felt like I was really becoming part of the war machine. I think I reached a point where I knew I no longer wanted to be in the midst of, of covering conflict. So I, I took a break. Um, actually, I took a buyout from my employer and moved on to to doing a deeper look and reflection on my years of covering conflict and wrote a book with the U.S. Marine who I'd met in Afghanistan called Shooting Ghosts, which explores all these issues of, of trauma and the emotional fallout from war for those who choose to engage with it. Would you describe your personal experience over the years covering conflicts and seeing all these things as trauma? I think the one thing to point out is that as journalists, we are exposed to other people's trauma. Uh, at the same time, though, journalists to do our job well we have to be very empathetic and be able to relate to people so i think on an emotional level exposing yourself to other people's suffering and and their trauma repeatedly over time can have a numbing effect or a depressing effect and can have an emotional impact on on us as journalists as well what were some of the things that you know led you to needing to step back and take a break well, I started to feel this sort of sense of emotional numbness and disconnect with the world around me. And that uh, was friends, that was family, girlfriend who I was with at the time. I just felt emotionally disconnected and uh, sort of sense of depression. The idea of just getting out of bed to, to work or to do anything or to socialize just felt really unappealing. Depression, isolation, numbness. These are very normal symptoms for someone who's experienced trauma. Journalists can suffer the same trauma as the people they're covering. Exposure to violent or disturbing events brings about anxiety, depression, even post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. But journalists also have to deal with what is called moral injury, a psychological term that goes beyond the trauma of exposure to violence and destruction. What we're talking about with moral injury, it's any kind of transgression or perceived transgression or insult to someone's core moral ethical code. So it could be um, witnessing something, it could be you actually participating in or not acting in something that goes against your moral belief. Alex Logan is a health and safety professional who works for Key Objectives, teaching the physical and psychological components of hostile environment training courses for journalists. One journalist I spoke to had interviewed a family whose child had been killed. And this journalist knew that the child's body had been found, but the family members that she spoke to weren't aware. So it was having that information before the family members was quite distressing for her. Another example would be a person who has been exposed to repeated traumatic scenes, and particularly um, one comes to mind of seeing children that have been killed uh, in conflict zones and then seeing children in a morgue and then coming home and feeling this disconnection from their children. Um, and also when they're at the morgue, not feeling that sense of sorrow that they originally had felt the first time that they witnessed um, children being killed. So feeling that disconnection and that loss of feeling. Is trauma always associated with seeing death and destruction or can it be in situations that are a little more um, grey? 
I don't think it necessarily has to do with exposure to an acute traumatic situation or acute traumatic event. It can be little things that build up over a period of time. Recently, for the first time, an Australian journalist was awarded compensation for exposure to um, when reporting for the court. So even though they didn't actually witness the crime, they were actually reporting on them. So they were actually awarded monetary payout for basically being repeatedly exposed to this um, psychological trauma. Photographer Finbar O'Reilly was suffering from depression, most likely due to this moral injury. But like most people, it took him some time to figure out there was a problem. For the longest time, I, I just was feeling very disconnected and um, removed from the world, like I was just sort of watching it from the sidelines. And over time, I realized that this something wasn't quite right. And, and I started reading stuff about you know, members of the military who suffer these kinds of things from their experiences at war. And through some encouragement from friends, I decided, no, maybe I need to look at getting some professional help. And uh, I, I ultimately did that through the company that I was working for at the time, uh, had, had a system in place where you could contact a confidential hotline and speak to a professional psychologist about this. And as soon as I did that, I began to understand that this wasn't something that was unusual, that this is very common. Once you realize that you're not the only person experiencing these kinds of emotions, it's quite reassuring to understand that you can explore this and, and manage it in a way. So the coping mechanisms, can you talk about some of the things that you worked on to deal with it? The first step for me was speaking with a professional. And one of the things that recovering or dealing with trauma that's really important is to have a supportive social environment and social structure around the natural inclination is to withdraw into yourself and kind of close yourself off from the world and that leads to a sort of downward spiral of further isolation further depression and so the most important thing really is to be able to engage when you really don't feel like engaging with anybody else and so just being around other people and whether that's a partner or family or close friends you can't really recover or manage trauma on your own. One of the things that comes up in this is the stigma of mental health problems, of depression, and even on a career level, um, concerns about, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to maybe have to step back and not be able to work. What is the impact or what is the stigma attached to saying, admitting there's a problem in the first place? Yeah, certainly there, there has been a stigma around asking for help and Photography and conflict photography in particular is a very male-dominated, macho business. And so initially, you don't want to be seen as somebody who can't handle the, these tough situations. But in fact, I've been very open about talking about these things because I think it's important to understand that these are very natural human responses. And it's people at the higher levels of management, they need to understand that this has to be an open subject that people can talk about so that you're not putting your your journalists in emotional danger just as you wouldn't want to put them in a sense of physical danger either. At the beginning, when you first started addressing these things in yourself, was there um, the same kind of feeling like you wanted to be open? Uh, I think once I had spoken to a professional psychologist and I could understand that this was something that was quite normal and at that point, I felt like, okay, well, this is nothing to hide. And I, I was open with my bosses, with my colleagues. And ultimately, in writing the book, I put everything in there that I was going through. 
I haven't felt any detrimental effects whatsoever. I spent a couple of years working on the book and now I'm back out in the field and I'm working occasionally in conflict zones again. And I don't feel like there's been any detrimental effect. Now that you're back out in the field again, sometimes covering conflicts, what are some of the things that you do differently than you would have not done perhaps several years ago? Well, I think it's very different working as a freelancer and working for a newspaper. I suppose it's a different kind of photography in a way than a newswire photographer would do. I am able to a large degree pick and choose the assignments that I want to do and feel comfortable with. And I feel like there is a payoff, a balance in terms of the risk to return ratio, which I didn't always feel in some of the work that I'd maybe done previously. And then I also make sure to come back to a comfortable and safe environment afterwards and take, take a rest. Which wasn't necessarily happening before. Exactly. What are the kinds of things that you think that editors and managers should be on their own looking out for if somebody's not upfront about these sort of things? What are the questions they should be asking before somebody goes out and, and after, especially when they come back? It's always helpful, I think, if an editor acknowledges, like, this is going to be a difficult assignment, there will be risks involved, are you comfortable with that? And that's not always a question that's asked? Nope, not always, but it, it is asked in the conversations I've been having lately with editors that I work with, and that is encouraging. And then editors, it's always good if, if editors can follow up afterwards. Whether or not you did a good job with the pictures or the assignment or whatever it was, the editor can just check in and say, hey, how are you doing after that assignment? Or just wanted to make sure things are okay if you need a break or if you want to talk things through. Communication is a huge, huge thing. And I've worked with bosses who were very good at communicating with staff and other ones who were completely non-communicative. And that is really damaging, really damaging when a boss is or a manager just does not express any kind of concern or acknowledgement of the the kind of efforts and risks that you've put yourself at physically and emotionally. Those are, are really damaging things. The journalist in the field just needs to understand that their editor is watching out for them because as soon as that doesn't happen, people can become very isolated and feel very removed and alone and that's where problems can occur. Um, wh what kind of advice do you give people based on your own experience? Each person's own lived experience is going to be different. And so I will just try to help them understand that this is a normal reaction and that this is okay to talk about. It's okay to feel the way that we feel about these things. And I think for a lot of times, journalists... We don't feel as if we have the right to feel traumatized because what we feel and experience is nothing compared to the people who we are photographing or covering. We feel like, who are we to complain when we can just come back and have a nice time in a hotel or go and see our friends and go to a barbecue? But that juxtaposition of living and covering those extreme situations and coming back to a place of comfort can also be very jarring and guilt-inducing, especially if you start to receive accolades or awards for the work that you've done it's sometimes very difficult to reconcile those things. And so I just talk things through with people and there's no one answer and there's no one solution. There is no one solution, of course. And Finbar O'Reilly has a specific perspective. As a foreign correspondent being sent into places where ultimately he can leave, get away from the situation and take care of himself if he wants. But what about those who can't leave? Amantha Pereira, the Sri Lankan journalist we heard from earlier, covered conflicts in his own country for the local paper he worked for, as well as for international outlets. 
Today, he works as the Asia-Pacific Coordinator for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, an institution based at Columbia University in New York. When he was working in the field, he remembers the divide between local journalists and the correspondents who would arrive for short amounts of time and then move on. There was always this notion that the foreign correspondents who would fly in or who would be based in a certain location for an extended period of time would have this professional uh, detachment. Because them being not so connected, they could take that step back. And sometimes the impact that others who are based in that country, born, bred in that country... Like you. Yeah, would not be felt by them. And we're talking about real inhumane things. I mean, I have seen people's bodies strewn all over the place, just exploded, and small children killed vantomly by this violence. Now, when you go home, you talk with your family, that's the main topic of the discussion. And then there is a lot of anger, there's a lot of emotion that comes with it. Uh, it becomes part and parcel of your life. And there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that. And unfortunately, at least during the coverage of the Sri Lankan conflict and the tsunami, uh, we never looked at that. We always thought, okay, journalists should be detached, that they should take this clearly uh, impartial approach to their reporting. Yes, they should do that. But we never looked at the pressures that national and local journalists would feel. How do you think that's changed today in Sri Lanka? And what do you see put in place today that maybe you didn't have when you were working? The difference now is quite stark. Like, for example, if you look at the Easter attacks this year, uh, in 2019, the Easter attacks where about 200, uh, more than 250 innocent people were killed and oh, close to 500 uh, were injured. As soon as journalists started covering the story, the dialogue began within the community itself about how do, how do we remain, how do we look after our mental well-being while doing this? And it showed the kind of evolution that had taken place within the Sri Lankan journalism community. And now there are journalists who are trying to set up networks and mechanisms where journalists who feel that they have been really affected badly could even seek counselling. Now that's a huge development for me because 10 years back, during the final phase of the war, even at that time, we didn't even talk about psychological impact. And there were people who thought, okay, talking about that was belittling the job that we did and it made us look weak. But now, 10 years later, we are here. So that's a 10-year evolution. What do you attribute that to? You know, what are the kinds of things that were put in place and the mentality changes that, that have led to these changes? Well, practically, there was this really intense three years, say from about 2006 up to about 2009, uh, where the war was really intense and journalists who were covering that probably didn't have any free time. Then suddenly it ended. It ended on May 19th, 2009. It was as if like you were in this huge noisy place and suddenly the cacophony had just gone down and there was, you know, almost absolute silence. And then some journalists, some photographers started reflecting on the work the conversations were mostly private, one-on-one, -on -one, but there was a conversation. And 
it evolved that conversation then jumped to semi public and then public forums where i generally started talking about saying look we need to address the emotional impact of what we cover we're talking about journalists starting to talk about things starting to want to formalize support does that support exist in the culture at large and i ask this because often you know different cultures have different approaches to just general mental health in terms of resources available or even admitting that there are problems how does it work in sri lanka there there is help available especially in urban areas but it's not as frequent as it should be there is no specialized help available for journalists and that's the area you need some resources and expertise and aptitude uh, development now we don't have those kind of uh, resources so we are not yet there but we are probably on the path where if this work continues it will naturally progress to that but to get there a lot of work needs to be done What is some advice that you might give to individual journalists in terms of dealing with some of this stuff if they're starting to identify it in themselves in the first place? Uh, well, I think for individual journalists, the first advice I would give is that not to neglect it. Don't ignore it. Don't think that being bulletproof is the norm. No, it's not. And if there aren't local resources available seek the resources that are available outside and then for journalist also the fact and this probably works better with senior journalist or gatekeeper level journalist they need to start talking about this not in a context where suddenly you stop everything in the newsroom and say look today we are going to discuss trauma and journalism no you need to kind of make it like for example you, we have briefings when journalists go to cover assignments but why why don't we have a debriefing and within that debriefing let's just ask how do you feel right how does that story make you feel or something like that just make sure that as much as we are looking at personal safety physical safety and other professional issues into that same context bring the idea of mental well-being that involves a pretty major culture shift though from what i understand in terms of this world of conflict journalism but also just in general in certain news rooms and news cultures that's a big shift in saying let's start talking about our feelings well yes it is a major cultural shift and it also takes time like in sri lanka it took almost a decade for us to see the impact but the conversation has to start somewhere and there's going to be a lot of pushback for the people who start these conversations but there's also going to be people who are receptive and once you kind of figure out where that idea is receptive then you build on that in your work with other countries and journalists in other countries besides Sri Lanka what are the kinds of environments that you've seen and situations that you've seen that others could maybe take lessons from in the different work that you've been doing well i mean one of the other countries that i have been kind of closely involved in is in nepal where after the 2015 earthquake we went in and did a bit of work now there there are different sets of uh, circumstances in nepal they are living on a disaster that is waiting to happen has a lot of impact on those journalists 
and the way they approach their work, especially disaster coverage, each country is different. Like we went to Myanmar uh, when the country was opening up, there the journalists were probably under so much intense pressure in terms of security and surveillance and repercussions. That was where most of the trauma was coming from. So each country has different circumstances and you need to adapt to those circumstances. You're saying that each situation is different, obviously, depending on the context. But in Nepal, in Myanmar, what are some of the things that journalists are doing or that you have worked on with journalists that that work? Well, I think what has really worked for us is creating that environment within the community where journalists feel safe that, okay, my colleagues understand this that we are all in this together. So it it need not be within one newsroom. It could be from different newsrooms. But the fact that there are journalists who acknowledge that and they are aware of that, uh, that itself creates this safe environment for them. What does that look like logistically? Are we talking about people getting together once a month? Are we talking about WhatsApp groups? Well, initially, for something like that to start off, you need to bring the community together practically. And then if there is no local or national know-how on trauma and journalism, you have to initiate that discussion. Then you need to look at real practical steps. For example, what we did in Sri Lanka last month, about one and a half months after the Easter attacks, we were able to have a kind of like a retreat where about 10 to 15 senior most journalists gathered together and discussed how these things had affected people. So with the help of a journalism organization, we got hold of facilities to meet and then we approached doctors who were working in government hospitals but who had not been dealing with journalists. We approached them and they have agreed to come in as counselors if there is a need. So you need to set up those practical steps. And one of the biggest impediments is that to do that, somebody has to be engaged. And for somebody to be engaged, there needs to be funds. And especially in contexts like Sri Lanka and in Nepal and probably in Myanmar, there is a lack of funding because we are not going to get newsrooms, TV stations to come in and buy in on this. They're not going to do that. So in Sri Lanka, this whole operation has happened voluntarily. Journalists have come in and done it uh, voluntarily. That's it. So these are the practical issues. So it sounds like a lot of this support and coping mechanism can be informal in the sense that it could be amongst colleagues and friends, but there needs to be a kind of formal organization, i.e. somebody needs to take the lead and say, okay, let's let's follow up on this. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, informal is a good start. But if you want to really make this effective, it needs a formal structure. The Sri Lankan workshop, the people who took part in it came to it Voluntarily. So in a context like that, what people do voluntarily really matters. And one final thing that I just wanted to add is that wherever we come from, whether we are going from Sri Lanka to Indonesia or we are going from the US to Nepal, don't try to impose. That doesn't really work. If we go and try to say, look, this is what's been done in Sri Lanka. Let's come go and do this in Kathmandu. That doesn't work. You nearly need to figure out what works in those context and then work with that.
Although, on the flip side, it sounds as though the fundamental is talking and being open about experiences, and that cuts across everything. Yes. The key there is that how do you get people to talk about it? The biggest issue that we need to deal with is that how do we get people to open up? Opening up, acknowledging that there might be a problem, talking, whether with a professional or as part of informal networks. Health and safety trainer Alex Logan says, ideally, all of this would be implemented in newsrooms on a systemic level. Just as newsrooms need to be doing physical risk assessments ahead of dangerous assignments, the psychological component should be part of it too. Your risk assessment should always include your hazards related to mental health and behavioural health. So your very beginning, I'm going to sit down and we go, this is where we're going. Um, these are your physical risks. Okay, then um, next to these, we have your psychological risks. Bringing it in in that way, aligned with all the other risks. So it's not lesser, uh, it's not higher, it's just part of your general risk assessment. And then from there, talking about, okay, how are we going to mitigate these risks? So if you're going to a war zone, one of the things from a health point of view is you're going to go over there with first aid training. You're going to go over there with your vaccinations. It's the same for your mental health. So you're going to prepare, you're going to talk about the situations that you may possibly get into. So talking about what their moral codes are, what's driving them, and how there could be a conflict between what their professional requirements are and their moral code of conduct. This seems like very personal conversations that you'd be having with a boss, essentially. How do you encourage people to do that without say, feeling like they're going to reveal too much about themselves or even perhaps put their careers at risk. That is something that, for journalists, is not well documented. It is documented in the healthcare profession that is actually being addressed. And part of that, I think, is you need strong leadership. So your bureau chief or whoever the senior person is steps in with the group and says, you know, we have all these other hazards and part of that are psychological hazards. That's normal. Um, We're humans. We're not robots. So there will be psychological hazards. We're aware of that and we want to address it. And the best way we can address it is by talking about it openly, but also saying and having it clearly demonstrated there will be no repercussions for someone that reports something or raises an issue there needs to be that commitment made there and it needs to be stuck to and followed by by leadership, basically. So coming back, that's the next step of all this. What happens when people get back? What are the kinds of support? What works in terms of support? I don't think they're being used yet, but they are being used in the military. And I know that's something that in the healthcare system may be using as well. But you have basically psychometric tools which you can use when someone comes back, a Likert scale, and they can rate, give a rating of the type of moral injury exposure that they felt that they've had or symptoms that they've had. And they can be used as a tool to look at any possible areas that may need work on to help the person talk about it a little bit more, open it up. That's potentially a useful tool for a newsroom to say, hey, come back and systematically everybody fill out these forms, see where you are on these scales, even if you're not necessarily feeling it. Yeah, I think that you may feel that you're okay, but then when you actually circle and you look at the different answers and someone looks at them in the picture with you and goes through them, what you may think is normal behaviour, you actually realise talking to someone else that actually it's, that's not quite normal to feel that way. You know, ha- having three or four drinks a night is not 
particularly healthy behaviour. So the person mightn't be willing to talk about something openly, but when they fill a form in or they write something down, it can be an invitation for the person reading it to ask them a little bit more um, about what they're writing about and get more information from them. So this is an immediate debriefing session to some extent after an assignment. What are the resources that should or could be put in place um, by news organizations, you know, even small ones, maybe without huge number of resources? What are the kinds of things that you could put in place for somebody who then might be having some some problems or potential problems? So one of the big things with psychological health is a sense of shame. And uh, you mentioned one before earlier about fear of reporting because of fear of losing your job. Now, your peer support network is really important. And this is where this is really important for training of key personnel who can fall into that role. So strategic level, you need to have those systems in place. Um, However, informal peer support, we call them in other terms, accidental counsellors. So basically, you have someone, one person that there's someone you feel you can talk to and you relate to and they listen. That's just as great as having a, a formal peer support network. It's having someone that will listen to you and can take on what you're saying without being judgmental, but also being able to help you offer some suggestions or help you find ways of things that help will help you cope. One question that comes up in a lot of the, the risk assessment in general and the looking at safety and security is the difference between staffers and freelancers, where staffers have more job security, maybe more confidence that if they are more open, it's less likely they're going to get fired, whereas a freelancer feels like you need to you know, not shake things up because you might not get hired. And I think this is particularly important for journalists these days where increasingly organizations are calling on freelancers. If it was perfect world, they definitely have the same duty of care to freelancers as they do to staffers. Does that happen in real life? No, it doesn't. So then that means basically as a freelancer, you're pretty much left to your own devices and it's a way of finding things that can help you to remain mentally healthy. Things like trying to develop your ability to compartmentalize your work so that when you go back to the your your personal life or your family or the other areas that make you happy you're able to switch off you don't continue and carry that over how do you do that is that also getting professional help and seeing a counselor every once in a while or is that something that is just keeping in mind in your head of just try to keep those things separate I, I think it's a combination um, some people can't relate to a counselor they're not comfortable doing that they don't want to go down the medical model um, at all. It depends on what works for you, but you plan it. If you know you're going to do a difficult job, you plan for when you get back, you do something immediately that makes you happy. So whether it's going for a run, whether it's listening to music, whether it's you know catching up with a friend, um, just something that puts you into another space, removing that stress that you had and gets you back into to feeling like you do as your normal self. Another way, like you mentioned, is having counsellor support or having, you know, a a really good friend, a a colleague, someone that you can talk to that can relate to you and just listen, just having someone to listen to. It seems like what you're talking about trauma, it's about coping and it's about not letting it get to you on a very deep level. It is. And um, it's about talking about it. If you keep something inside of you it just builds up and there's this wonderful aboriginal belief when you talk about something your words carry away the problem on the wind 
And I often use that example when I'm talking with clients and with patients about the healing ability of talking and just actually talking about something is a huge step forward. Talking and being heard, taking care of yourself. In a future episode, we'll be going deeper into this idea of self-care, the need to shield yourself from trauma in the field or even harassment online. In the meantime, there are resources to help journalists and editors. The DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma has a fact sheet that explains the impacts of covering trauma on journalists. And you can also find more resources on the Press Freedom section of the WANIFRA website. That's wan-ifra.org. Please do subscribe to The Backstory to hear future episodes in this series on journalist safety as soon as they're released. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and remember, until next time, stay safe.